What's up, everyone? You're listening to Hey Man, the advice podcast for men. I'm Avi Klein. I'm Sam Graham-Felson. I'm a therapist. Sam's a novelist. Each week, we're joined by a special guest to answer your questions and hopefully get a few of our own questions answered as well. This week, we're joined by Professor Matthew Gutman from Brown University. He is an anthropologist and the author of the recently published Are Men Animals? How Modern Masculinity Sells Men Short. The book is about how our cultural expectations of manhood and masculinity are not always as grounded in biology the way we think, you know, boys will just be boys or whatever. Um, so we talk about that, his background, uh, studying men and masculinity. And we get an advice question from someone who uh, recently went on a bad date after a dispute about splitting the check. Stay tuned. The book that you wrote is really, this is your thing. This is your area of expertise. <laughs> Yeah. How, how would you just describe that? It was sort of new for me outside of really Michael Kimmel, who's the only academic and like, I'm not super familiar with the field, but like, how would you describe your areas of interest? I mean, broadly speaking, it's the academic study of men and masculinities. Mm. Uh, there's journals, there are books, articles. Um, there's a center that Michael formed, uh, at, um, Stony Brook. Yeah. I would say that, um, you know, for me getting into this, there were two things that happened. One, somebody reasonably asked me when I was uh, starting off in grad school, why is it just women who study gender? Yeah. I thought that was a decent question. Um, and then the other is I took a photograph of a guy in Mexico City working in a musical instrument store holding a baby. And I, sh I showed the photo to a bunch of uh, friends in the U.S. and also in Mexico. And I got such dramatically different responses. I mean, some thought it was bizarre. Some thought it was impossible. Um, I ended up putting it on a cover of a book hmm. at one point. And the art editor um, of the press said, we can't put a posed picture on the cover. And I said, well, it's not post. That's kind of the point. And he said, no, that's impossible. This guy's Mexican. No, Mexican men are machos. They don't hold babies. <laughs> and I go, well, that's kind of the point of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed in the um, acknowledgments that, uh, that you thanked um, two of your brothers. And I also grew up with two brothers. I don't know if you had any other uh, siblings, but... Um, but I'm I'm just curious, like if you could give us a little bit of a sense of what your um, boyhood was like, and would you would you have described it as a quote unquote typical boyhood? Did you play sports? Did you do typical macho boyish things? Like, how, I'm just curious, as somebody who ended up interrogating gender and masculinity as 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 an academic, um, what was your childhood like? Well, I'd be happy to talk about my childhood, but I just want to mention that for me. I think more than anything else, the study of men and masculinity is a political question. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't so much, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, my background, which I'll explain in a second, um, influences, but I think a lot of it is that I've been interested in questions of inequality, mm. uh, social inequalities for a long time. I was a community organizer for 15 years. And so when I went back to school, I was looking for a topic that was understudied, but important that dealt with that. Um, that I could approach, I thought, that I could bring something to. Um, so I don't, anyway, 
my unlike everybody else, uh, I did not have a normal uh, childhood. I know everybody else's was normal, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my folks divorced when I was three, and my father stayed in Cincinnati, Ohio, and my mother and I moved east uh, to the Boston area. But I would go back to Cincinnati every summer, and I had two older brothers. My father remarried a woman whose husband had died, and. Uh, had two kids. And so my father had uh, two stepchildren, but they became my brothers from the time I was three. Mm. And the transition from the age of three back and forth between Boston and Cincinnati, first of all, they're completely different worlds culturally. Um, we were Jewish in Cincinnati and we didn't know what religion was in Boston, mm. among other things. Um, but beyond that, my brothers made, and particularly one of my brothers at that time, made my life wonderful. Um, he fit me into all his social circles and uh, made the transition back and forth, which can be, you know, a little challenging for a kid. Um, he made it so much better than it would have been otherwise. Wow. Um, and I have a deep appreciation and gratitude toward him mm -hmm. for that. And in one way or another, both of them have played... Um, huge roles in my life as models mm. uh, in various kinds of ways. We have different personalities, um, different life experiences, uh, but I look to each of them in different ways um, as people that I would like to emulate. So I'm I'm not the uh, psychologist, uh, obvious. <laughs> um, I'm just a novelist, uh, but but um, but I am tempted to um, do a little armchair psychologizing that, you know, maybe just the fact that you grew up with... Um, with older male um, siblings who were actually like role models of generosity and decency rather than jerks who beat you up every day. You know, I don't know, maybe that uh, in some ways. There's a little of that. <laughs> yeah. 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 But there's certainly a lot of um, idealism in, in the book about how, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not uh, trapped by, um, you know, certain trends in, in, in biology, which of course you point out the, the 10 million counterexamples of those trends. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that so much of this stuff really is, um, in, in our control to, uh, to transcend. So, um, but, but again, before we get to the book, we wanted to ask a couple other questions. Oh yeah. Sure. I, I mean, um, with something else I was just sort of curious about, um, is like, we're we're living in a moment, I don't know, maybe it's optimistic to say like finally, but where it really seems like masculinity is being interrogated and where, um, and I'm just kind of wondering like for you, having made your whole career out of this, what it's like <laughs> to watch this and, and see it happening. Well, um, wonderful mm -hmm. in the sense that I think people are questioning what it means to be a man and what men do and don't do or should and should, uh, shouldn't do. Um, you know, there are social movements like Me Too, which I think have been absolutely profoundly uh, important. Um, and I'm struck in two ways that academic sort of research and talk about this stuff is important, but it's not sufficient. Mm -hmm. um, that I think social movements, in particular with, in relationship to men, feminism, um, I don't think any changes would have come about had it not been for political and social struggles along the way. And so I think that that's been re-emphasized now. Um, and I think, I think it's fair to say that in men and masculinity studies, 
uh, overwhelmingly scholarship is rooted um, in the desire for political change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wouldn't say it's gratifying in the sense of we think we, you know, did something important that laid the basis, but I think we've been addressing problems that are of broader interest now and are taken a little more seriously. At the same time, the fact is, uh, Michael Kimmel once told me there'd never been a job. And as far as I know, there still hasn't been a job in any university for somebody who focuses on men and masculinity studies. That job description's never been written. Mm. So that it's still a fairly, within the academy, a fairly marginalized topic Yeah. Um, um, in, in certain ways. You teach at Brown, which, um, which is up there as probably one of the wokest, uh, universities in the world. And, um, you know, often on the forefront of things like safe spaces and, um, and, and sort of radical gender politics. And I'm just curious, like, um, is there resistance or receptivity or both to the idea that like, um, masculinity, um, is, you know, for example, like one of the things you write about in your book that I thought was striking is, um, uh, you know, that, that maybe we shouldn't laugh all the time when we see somebody get hit in the balls, you know, on a movie or TV. And, um, and, you know, and, and so much of the book is, is about the ways in which these kind of, um, uh, uh, folk biology, uh, myths that get encrusted about men, um, are completely accepted by even, you know, progressive, uh, people in every other respect who deplore racism, who deplore misogyny, but they're still susceptible to to parroting um, these kind of generalizations based on, you know, supposedly based on biology about men. I'm just curious, like, are is there is there receptivity to the kinds of things that you talk about in this book at a place like Brown, or is it still seem almost like um, like if like too much of like apolog- uh, letting men off the hook? You know what uh, I mean? I don't want to sort of. Um, plead the, well, there's a little bit of everything, mm. um, but there's a little bit of everything. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact is, just take the, um, the whole movement around pronouns. Yeah, It's very common now among the undergraduates for them to specify at the beginning of a class when you go around and introduce yourself what pronoun they prefer. Less common among graduate students. Very common in certain departments for faculty to do it in theater, in anthropology, um, in ethnic studies, some of the ones that are sort of more attuned to political trends today and, and, and have politics as more central. If you go into some of the other departments and some of the older faculty, you're going to find confusion at best, uh, on why anybody's, you know, making a big deal about pronouns these days. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me, uh, that you ha- Brown is a microcosm more than most people might assume um, of a broad spectrum of ideas. I think there's no doubt that it trends left uh, on on many kinds of questions. But when it comes to gender and when it comes to men and masculinity, I think some of this stuff is pretty deep rooted in terms of the language we use and even the frameworks we just sort of everyday life we go around with. Sexual assault at Brown is a serious problem. 
Hmm. You know, maybe it's centered particularly among some of the athletes, but it's not just the athletes. This is a problem that that is confronted by the undergraduates um, on a virtually daily basis in one way or another. And so Brown is not immune from many of these these kinds of factors. But I think the good news is that the pronoun thing came out of nowhere, as far as I can tell. And within a few short years, all of a sudden people were questioning, what does it mean to use he, she, what does it mean to use they instead? And wherever it's gonna go, I don't know. But people are looking more critically at some things we took for granted, and I think that's a step forward. Are men um, even close to uh, women in terms of um, the numbers of, of who volunteers their pronoun? Especially straight, I don't straight men. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think a lot, <laughs> I do know there's some controversy, but I don't know how widespread that a lot of cisgender guys are using, um, are calling themselves queer. Uh huh. And some queer students are getting pissed off about it, uh-huh. okay. that they're appropriating this term because they're trying to make a statement, et cetera, et cetera. So th- there's debate over who can be what and what does, you know, what do these different terms mean? But to me, that's incredibly uh, the possibility of it really going somewhere and really questioning the gender binary, which, you know, as you may know, the Vatican has ruled very recently, come out with a major document last summer saying the gender binary is almighty and it's biological and we have to get back to it and get rid of all this other, you know, flexible ways of, of, of talking in gender theory. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, just one of the things, and and again, I don't want to press you to make um, generalizations about your students, or um, you're you're not doing um, quantitative sociology. Um, but I guess one of the things that I'm curious about is like it almost seems like the things that you're talking about in your book are almost like a third rail because it's um, uh, it it's it, you you have to say that um a statement like oh women are you know weak is a sexist statement like that right. just you have to say that but to say men are violent um is is it would be widely considered an accurate statement yeah. even by people who consider themselves not sexist right and right. um and i think like that idea is is still like I think that's still pretty hard for people to 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 grok to because like it almost sounds like it's it it's um, an apology for patriarchy when in fact it's the opposite. Right. I mean, I think let's get into it. I mean, <laughs> is is my attitude? Um, how many people walk around saying, uh, at least at Brown, um, oh well, you you know why she was like that? She was hormonal. Right. I don't hear anybody say that. I'm not saying that people don't think it, but people don't talk like that nearly as much. They may in certain circles, but not nearly as much overall in the United States, for instance. I think that some of the stuff has been challenged, nowhere near enough, but some of it's been challenged in terms of the language we use around women and what's natural and what's normal and all that kind of stuff, and to what extent their biology dictates how they behave or how they think or how they feel. I don't think we've done a similar kind of critical uh, analysis, but also discussion. I don't think we've had a similar discussion. 
So just to take, you know, the example that that is often bandied about, nine out of 10 murderers in the United States and many other countries are men. Mm -hmm. That's important. Yeah. But the fraction of men who were murderers is infinitesimal. Mm. It's tiny. So that say that men are aggressive. Well, yes, if you hear about aggression, mass murder in the United States, virtually always it's a male. But is that biological? Why aren't all men murderers if it's biological, mm -hmm. if it's normal that way? And so it seems to me that you can point to societies in which you have high gun ownership and you don't have mass murders right. by men or women. Yeah. So it's not just simply men do this, guns do this, alcohol does this. It's cultural, you know. And so when I heard people talk about Brett Kavanaugh behave the way he did because teenage boys have a lot of testosterone running through their system and they don't know how to control it, I'm thinking – Actually, most teenage boys don't assault teenage girls. Right. They don't. And they have just as much damn testosterone. So why do we fall so easily into talking about something, you know, hormonal or uh, genetic in terms of Y chromosome? Why is that such an easy explanation for so many things? Um, and why don't we question it more seriously? Why is that such a tempting argument for so many of us to make? Like, why why is it so appealing to dismiss, um, to write off men as just inherently violent and and not challenge it? Right. You know, I don't have a, a pat answer. Um, why do people look to general explanations, um, not digging too deeply? Uh, to explain the world around them. Obviously, people um, who have a deep faith in religion and God can use that as it's God's will. Mm -hmm. And that explains the world for a lot of people, and it has for a long time. To me, it's not entirely different to sort of say it's biology's will. Mm -hmm. It's because of biology. It's a relatively simple, straightforward way to explain the world around you, and especially when you have so much confusion and debate and, 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 and you know, sturm and drang around gender, um, a simple explanation that seems to hold water, I think is appealing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I was thinking um, as I was reading your book that part of, part of what's insidious about all of this is that if you buy into the biological arguments that, you know, men are inherently violent, um, and you aren't actually a violent guy. Like I have never been in a fight in my whole life. I've yeah. never, I mean, I've wrestled, but I've never been in a fist fight where I've been punched in my face. And, and it's funny on some level, I actually feel guilty as though like I'm a traitor to my biology. Like what's I'm wrong less with of a me? man? Yeah. Why haven't I been fighting? Like, you know, I must be a freak when in fact, like probably like, a great deal of men have never been in fights. They just don't talk about it because it's considered somehow like <laughs> this shameful, you know, betrayal of your biology. Right. And then to me, the issue is also, is there a class question there? In other words, are, are boys from the working class in many uh, contexts more likely to fight physically? Whereas wall street uh, investors, um, they may not fight physically, 
Um, but according to uh, <laughs> there's one neuroscientist at uh, Oxford who claims that the Wall Street traders are the epitome of masculinity and they, by definition, must have more testosterone running through their system <laughs> because they're more aggressive. Right. Um, so there's the physical, uh, but then there's psychological aggression. There's, uh, you know, all the rest of it. To me, the question fundamentally is, are we moving in various ways to a degendering world? So, for instance, take alcohol use. Historically, men would drink more in many societies and men would drink stronger kinds of things. That is less true today than it was before. So gender is less associated with one kind of alcohol consumption and the amount of consumption. I mean, the amount you drink. Men can still drink more if they're larger, et cetera, et cetera. But the physical differences between men's and women's bodies is not so horribly dramatic. And so what you're finding on college campuses is girls and boys are drinking a lot and they're drinking the same stuff. And so it's less associated. Now, are we going to move in the same direction with regard to political leadership? Mm -hmm. A hundred years ago, nobody, no women were uh, in parliaments and senates and all the rest. Um, the only women leaders were basically queens of a few countries. Now, we're nowhere near 50-50 now. But it's much harder to argue that women cannot be, because of their biology, because of their emotional makeup, political leaders. Whereas 100 years ago, people were convinced. If it wasn't biology, if it wasn't natural, then why? how could you explain that over millennia, women had never risen to be leaders? Something's changed dramatically in the last 100 years. And it seems to me that it's a general degendering uh, is is the direction that we can possibly go in in many other uh, realms as well. Um, can can I ask you to explain the difference in in your mind between biology and folk biology? Because um, you're not saying that um, that biology is completely irrelevant in this book. Um, not at all. So to me, the distinction between biology and folk biology, biology, you could say, is what uh, as, as a system of thought is what uh, scientists practice. Folk biology is what is popularly picked up. They're not necessarily different. They can actually that you have plenty of scientists, including Wrangham, which argue fairly strongly for the innate biological natural compulsions that males feel to do various things, such as have sex with as many females as they can, as often as they can. Um, and that this is something that has developed through evolution and female choosiness is contrasted specifically with male um, aggressive uh, attempts to, to procreate as much as, as, as possible. It seems to me that, first of all, take an example like pornography. I had a uh, job interview many years ago with one of the leading cognitive anthropologists in the world. Um, and we were talking uh, about my research on men and masculinity. And he said, look at Matt, he said, 
Clearly, culture is important, but in many ways, biology is going to determine what men think, do, and feel, and how it's very different than women. He said, take the example of pornography. And now this was 1996. The internet was not yet blasting pornography all over the place in people's you know, uh, homes. And so if you were going to watch pornography, you had to get it out of a video store or go to a porn theater or something like that. And it was overwhelmingly what men did. And his argument was, and he had studies to back it up, men are visually stimulated in terms of sex. Women are looking for something else in terms of sex to get sexually excited. It's a relationship question. It's not a visual stimulation. Therefore, porn's going to be popular with the guys not with the women. Lo and behold, 20 years later, 30 years later, we see that women are watching porn in numbers never seen before. We have to ask why. Have women's biologies changed and all of a sudden visual stimulation is important to them? Or has something else changed? And what's changed is the shame of watching pornography or the embarrassment or the, you know, all that is not going to be uh, present if you can do it privately, if nobody really knows what you're watching mm. and how. And so lo and behold, not all women, obviously, not all guys, but more women than ever before are watching porn. But an argument that was made emphatically, uniformly, 20 or 30 years ago about male and female sexual behavior has now been disproved in a way that never could have been predicted the internet. Yeah. And it seems to me that we need to question more some of the basic premises, such as choosiness among males and females. The, the evolutionary psychologist will tell us females are choosy, males are not. That's garbage, in my opinion. Any human experience, guys will not have sex with anybody they can have sex with. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that some guys don't want to have sex with a lot of different women, et cetera, et cetera. But I know plenty of women who want to have sex with a lot of different guys, too. Someone okay? should get the data from Tinder or something and run a study yeah. now that people can choose so much. Yeah, but we know we know from our experience in the world today that it's qualitatively different than in our parents and grandparents' generations with regard to that. So something has changed, and it ain't been the biology. What's changed are cultural standards that allow women or force women, whatever you want to say about it, but the practices are changing. And that points to culture being uh, tremendously important. And the final point I would make about, you know, all the chimpanzees and bonobos and whatnot. First of all, there is variation between the chimps and the bonobos and everybody knows about it. The bonobos have sex a lot. The chimpanzees fight more. Okay. The chimps are used as examples for human uh, evolution, because supposedly there are closest cousins. The people who study the bonobos come along and say, actually, the bonobos are just as close and they have sex all the time. So why are you just focusing on the guys, the males who are violent, as opposed to the males who want to have sex all the time, mm-hmm. um, or who do have sex much more often. But more importantly, if you take any population of chimpanzees and any population of bonobos, the range of behavior in any group will exist. There is not all chimps act the same. 
but the range of behavior is extremely limited compared to the range of human behavior, not just today, but historically. And so there is a qualitative difference in male human behavior and female human behavior, and we really get into trouble when we overdo the uh, comparisons to non-human animals. The subtitle of your book is How Modern Masculinity Sells Men Short. And I'm so I'm, I'm hearing all of the flaws in making these broad assumptions about what it means to be a man and how our biology dictates that. But how do men, I mean, what's the alternative for men? What if we, how do they get shortchanged by in the system? To the extent that we think men are pre-programmed to mm -hmm. act certain ways mm -hmm. um, in terms of sexual assault, in terms of uh, not being emotional, whatever it is that, that you happen to think, whatever stereotype you buy into, yeah. I think that we don't expect men to be any different. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with some people saying rape, for instance, men raping, uh, males raping females is natural. It's not good, but it's natural. Well, if that's what you think, then what you have to do is you have to separate men off from women because right. you can't stop them right. from wanting to do what is natural to them, supposedly. And I think that that is selling them short. I think that that's not holding them accountable mm -hmm. for their actions. Mm -hmm. So if you say Brett Kavanaugh held a lot of testosterone. It's just who he was, yeah. It's just, it, he couldn't help himself. Right, right. And I think it does a disservice to young men, ultimately, uh, to say that their testosterone just takes over their bodies at a certain point and the poor guys, you know, they can't help it. Don't hold it against them. Yeah. In, in a way, um, uh, it, it seems like um, it's obviously daunting to try to um, transcend fixed biology, you know, but I also think it's, it's, it's quite daunting if we accept um, the, the the premise of your book, which I do, that this is largely cultural and political, um, uh, the, the the you know these these behaviors that that we see uh, that are disproportionately male behaviors, such as murder, um, but it seems to me that it's still daunting to to transcend something that is so culturally embedded, um, you know. So that's still a scary task. It, it seems like an enormous. Uh, <laughs> To set yourself apart, thing. you mean, like yeah, just yeah. to be different. So, you know, I know that you're you're an ac academic. You're not here to do self help, but 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 um, and there there aren't really prescriptions at the end of the book. But since we are a a podcast that gives advice, I just before we actually move on to our yeah. advice question, I wonder, like, what just on a practical level, I mean, we want men to do better, but it's not that easy. What do you, what what are some steps to take? So, first of all. I think part of the um, the pitfall of over, of exaggerating the influence of some uniform biology um, is that if you think that way, you really can't act any other way. And I'm an anthropologist, and one of the pleasures of anthropology is we study people all over the world in all sorts of different contexts, and we study all different historical periods. And lo and behold, there's incredible variation in what it means to be a man. So you went to Harvard. I teach at Brown. You know, we can talk about Ivy League 
students or something, the male students. Well, that's a very limited microcosm, okay? But if you all of a sudden learn about men being men in completely different or what, what might seem completely foreign in different ways, all of a sudden that opens up the possibility for thinking that I can be something else. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that questioning the language we use, actually learning, I mean, digging down, if somebody says men are by nature aggressive or more aggressive than women, well, okay, let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? In what context? Why are there such differential rates of rape, for instance, in the world? It's not the same everywhere. Mm. Okay. And it seems to me uh, that there is tremendous uh, value in not skimming over the surface lightly. Yeah. And, and, and actually one of the, I mean, I, we don't, haven't given any stats, but just two that, that really struck, stuck out to me. One was the difference between the, the rate of rape in Alaska versus New Jersey, <laughs> which is something like eight times higher there. And, and as you say in the book, we would have to suppose that there's some kind of biological difference between Alaskans and New Jerseyans to, you know, credit that to biology. And the other striking one, and um, maybe you could just actually just spend one second explaining this, because I think this will be pretty surprising for most people to hear. We've talked about this statistic often on our show that um, that in America, the suicide rate among men is triple what it is among women. But actually in China, men commit suicide less frequently than women do. Um, that's ac that's actually just it's changed in the last 10 years. OK, but it was, for, but it was at but, some point. And um, right. Now, this is actually <laughs> this is my next book. Um <laughs> No, seriously. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm doing uh, a new, I just started a study. I was in China about a month ago, um, trying to figure out why uh, the rate has been much lower for men than women. Um, and then why in the last 10 years, it's all of a sudden shifted. Yeah. Worldwide, three or four times more men commit suicide than, than women. However, more women try to commit suicide. Right. So there's a lot of questions. Uh, one of the uh, best um, articles I've seen on the topic about the United States talks about the very high incidence of suicide. Now, very high. Most men don't try to commit suicide, don't commit suicide. OK, so we're talking about of those who do. And it is a serious public health issue um, in the United States. White middle class older men is one of the highest demographics. Mm. And so you ask why? It's not racism that they've suffered. It's not poverty that they've suffered. What is it about this? And one of the arguments is these, this is a group of men who've had more control over their lives for virtually their entire life. They have been able to dominate others to an extent that they haven't suffered racism, et cetera. They've been in more managerial positions, perhaps, and whatnot. And later on in life, their life has lost a purpose hmm. for many of them. They, yet they don't control, they don't have the power that they used to. This is one of the, to me, fascinating arguments uh, about the question of suicide. Um, but there's no doubt, it, in some countries, uh, young male suicide is the number two uh, uh, cause of death after vehicular uh, uh, crashes hmm. um, for young men. And yet it's not being looked at systematically. Um, it's being looked at still 
is an individual problem. 30,000 articles have been written in the last 20, 20 years about suicide. Uh, only a few hundred have been written in the social sciences. Virtually all of them are in psychiatry uh, journals and psychology journals, and it's regarded as individual um, problems of mental health, for instance, which is obviously a factor. But there's some social factors that we need to look at more systematically. And I think the fact that it's guys, we're not used to looking at men as a risk factor right. uh, in terms of health. And I think we need to do that uh, more. Thanks. So um, we're going to switch to the advice question. Um, oh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah. We're I, trying to do, this is a political choice on our part. We're trying to destigmatize uh, men asking for help. Yeah. That's part of what we're doing yeah. here. <laughs> but if, if you ask my daughters, they'd say, don't listen to whatever he says. <laughs> um, all right. Hey, man. I'm 19 years old and have just started dating a girl that I go to college with. We've been dating and hanging out for the last six weeks. On our first date, I asked if she was cool with splitting everything and she seemed fine with it. On this last date, though, I accidentally forgot my wallet in my dorm room. It wasn't until it was time to pay for our food that I realized I didn't have my wallet with me. I told her I would pay her back later when I got it, and I was surprised that she was really annoyed by this. She said something like, if anything, you should be offering to pay for me, not the other way around. I kept trying to explain that it wasn't intentional and I felt embarrassed and I wasn't asking her to pay for me. It didn't do anything to get her out of her bad mood and the date was pretty much ruined. We were supposed to go to the movies afterwards and she basically said she wasn't going to buy my ticket. Instead, we went back to my dorm room and I paid her back on the spot. It's only been a couple of days since, but things have obviously chilled between us. What should I do? Signed, Cash Poor in Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> We thought this one might be a good one for you, although we'll do our best not to analyze the, the gender dynamics here, although it's a piece of it, I guess. Absolutely. So to me, um, one of the great things about gender and studying gender is everybody, it's not like, you know, if I were a professor of Baroque architecture, yeah, my students would know nothing. Yeah, yeah. Everything I would be telling them would be the first time they'd heard it mm -hmm. and the first way they'd thought, you know, first time they'd thought about something. If you, it's if about gender, mm -hmm. everybody's got experience yeah. and everybody's got an opinion about it. Yeah. And so to me, so know, what, just what do you hear in this? Yeah. Going huh. out, well, no, just going out on a limb here. I I'm fascinated by the fact that people can talk about change, um, in terms of equality and women should earn as much as men and uh, men should do more childcare than their fathers did, et cetera, et cetera. And I think those are deep beliefs and deep desires for people to practice. At the same time, um, I think a lot of us, uh, probably most of us, continue to play with gender stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Think about hair. You know, there's a lot of guys with long hair and a lot of women with shorter hair. But overall, more women have longer hair and more guys have shorter hair still at this point. Yeah. And it seems to me that's continuing to play with a certain kind of appearance. Yeah. Very few of my male students wear makeup. Mm -hmm. A lot of my female students do wear makeup. There's no good reason one way or another why it should be like that. But it's, it's, a, it's a way to play with gender mm -hmm. and a play with appearances and play with uh, relationships it seems to me. Um, and it sounds like uh, for this young woman, 
um, that is still something serious that a guy does certain things or should. Mm -hmm. And for the young man, um, he's more of a, uh, of a mind of, wait a minute, I, why should things be old fashioned like that? Yeah. Um, and, and a little bit coming up against it. My guess, and just a guess is maybe she was just, she didn't know quite what to do with it. And she thought maybe he was taking advantage of her mm -hmm. in some way. Um, but maybe she's stuck in some old ways of, of, of looking at things, particularly with students. They're trying to figure this shit out. Yeah. They're, tr they're, you know, the next day she could have gone out on a date with another guy and she paid the whole thing yeah, yeah, happily yeah. because she, they're trying to figure this mm -hmm. out. They, they're, they're taking absolute, you know, absolutist positions one day and they're changing their mind dramatically the next. I so, appreciate that empathy for identity and flux. And, and yeah, it's <laughs> just, it, you have to give yourself permission to not take it too seriously because it's a, it's an experiment. Right. And that, that, it's always good to keep that in mind. And I, but I think like, um, you know, one recently, Avi and I were having a conversation off of the podcast about how, um, you know, sometimes, so Avi works a lot with men, um, uh, and, and he, he got a lot of, uh, attention after he wrote an article for the New York Times about um, men sort of struggling to deal with their masculinity in the wake of Me Too. And um, and I think like one of the one of the tricky things is sometimes when you work with men to be more emotional, more vulnerable, um, they come back to you and tell you that um, that their wives don't want to hear it. Yeah, that their <laughs> wives are like, what's wrong with you, you weakling? You yeah. know, and um, and it just seems like one of the tricky things about this this stuff is that like men who are making a good faith effort to um to get away from some of this quote unquote toxic masculinity sometimes are facing consequences um uh from women who are still a little bit stuck in playing those tr traditional i mean hearing you talk about it, it almost sounds like cosplay you know that that idea uh -huh. of the of of dressing up and you know um it, it, it's almost like there's gender cosplay going on sometimes yeah i think in a weird way, I think guys sometimes have an easier time yeah. breaking out of some of the stuff than the women do. Hmm. Um, I do a, in one of my classes, we have a, a gender inappropriate dress day. So whatever you think is inappropriate for whoever you are, you're supposed to dress differently. The guys have a much easier time. Hmm. I mean, they come in in tutus, they come in, you know, with, with makeup, all this kind of stuff. The women have a much harder time because there's virtually no clothing that women don't already wear. Yeah. So the only way they can do it generally is they paint on beards and mustaches mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's kind of shocking looking and all that. But I think it's harder. Um, you know, the, the people talk about stoicism and sort of the, the, the Marlboro man cowboy mentality as being an ideal that women wish men would, you know, assume. And that's the opposite of, uh, you know, displaying one's emotions and, and all that. There's no reason women should be any more immune to these kinds of social pressures mm -hmm. uh, than men. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that women with regard to themselves in some ways, uh, it's been easier, but, it, but it, with regard to men, I think that's a little bit more uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I'm just thinking, so, you know, my reading of this question is, you know, when he asked, do you mind if we split? I guess she said she didn't mind, but maybe really she did. 
And, uh, and once this, you know, he forgot his money, that was like the last straw for her or something like that is kind of how I made sense of this. <laughs> and right. I'm just thinking about like what, um, what this guy should do at this point, like how to, uh, how to talk about this, uh, with her. By the way, I just want to say one thing that I think is funny about the, the, the paying of the bill yeah. situation, which is that like. I, I actually totally get why some women still want men to pay the bill. It's like one of the few times in the patriarchy where women just like get something nice for free. <laughs> like they just get, like it's one, like, like it's like in every, you know, they, they like lose out on leadership positions and not a lot of talk in meetings. And it's like, but they get a free dinner. Like I don't really blame like, them for being like a little resistant to give that one up. But, <laughs> but I think that, um I think, I think, I think it's, I don't know. I think like actually, getting to what Matt was talking about earlier, like that might be a useful strategy for him to just not assume that like, this is her, you know, this is her, uh, concretized, um, you know, uh, unmovable position on, on paying. It was just like a mood she might've been in at that moment. And, you know, just, just without, I think without turning it into some giant discussion of, do you think men should pay for dinner or this or that? Um, uh, you know, putting her on the spot as somehow being backwards uh, in terms of the chivalry stuff mm-hmm. would probably be a bad way to yeah, approach yeah, I agree. it. Yeah. Or maybe maybe she thought he was a creep and that he did it intentionally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And she was like, hey, what the hell? You know, it's not that hard to remember to bring your wallet. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a really weird thing to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, as in so much else, why, if he's writing you guys, why can't he address it more directly with her? Yeah. That would be the first step. Um, I agree. <laughs> you know, he may be, I mean, if he's writing you guys, he's very aware mm-hmm. of, you know, or he's trying to become aware of all sorts of, you know, what do guys do, what yeah. guys shouldn't do and mm-hmm. all that. Mm-hmm. And he's thinking in every place I've ever looked at, never lived and never spent time in, um, you got a lot of contradictory stuff happening at the same time. Yeah. Take Ch- China today. You have more women PhDs than ever before in history. At the same time, the government has come out and said um, women who are not married by the time they're 27 will now be known as leftover women. Ouch. They don't say anything about the guys. Yeah. Okay. So you have tremendous kinds of, of forces working at cross purposes yeah, yeah. Uh, going on in China. That's yeah. just an example from yeah. there. But here you can also see it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my guess is if we sat down and talked to the two of them, uh, they would both agree on many things in terms of what women should do that would be identical to men. And then they might have this dinner thing. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's the exception to the rule. Totally. Kind of, you know, let's let's maintain that one. Who knows? It does um, kind of trying to work it out yeah. over time. It makes me, I mean, that is one of the things I'm sort of curious to see just as time goes on. Like there are things that we, at least if you're on the left politically, like there are things we want to see in the world and change that we want to see. And then there are the things kind of unconsciously that we want, you know, like, and I work with so many couples and it's like, and, and with a lot of women too. And, and they want a sort of, there are certain places like in the bedroom, for example, where something that is more stereotypically like, like, like polarized around gender lines, like is appealing to them and they just yep. want that. And I think yep. that's really interesting. It's like, we, we can't really police our desires and yet they're coming from our culture in a way that, that harms all of us at the same time. So it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know where to take a stand on that. 
Yeah, I mean, to say something's cultural versus biological doesn't mean it's not deep mm -hmm. and, you know, have has a lot of holding power. Yeah. Cultures don't change overnight either. Yeah. Is there a way, um, uh, like, to be, like, 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 I... I think this is maybe where you were going like let's say let's say she just wants to feel taken care of right um and wants yeah. him to pay and like is there a way to be playful about that without like maintaining the patriarchy <laughs> so to me that there's a question of scale here mm -hmm. the patriarchy is not just does not just reside in interpersonal relationships in a family for mm -hmm. instance mm -hmm. it's there yeah but it seems to me it's much more complex in a family. I mean, if you look at families all over the United States or all over the world, the actual relationship of who has decision-making power around what issues right. is, is, is incredibly diverse. Yeah. Whereas if you look at parliaments and state legislatures, Fortune 500, uh, university presidents, all that kind of thing, it's much more male-dominated, mm -hmm. much more clearly male-dominated. And there is certainly a business masculinity, um, international business masculinity, as, as theorist Raywin Connell is, has, has described very well. Um, so that when we're talking about patriarchy, it seems to me we're talking institutions mm -hmm. and not just sort of personal Joe Schmo and his attitudes. Yeah, um, yeah. It's related... But I don't think the family is simply just a microcosm or just a, a, a mirror of, of institutional problems. I think the, the problems are much greater uh, in certain ways at an institutional level. Mm -hmm. I think there's much more uh, uh, um, sharing um, in many more families than you find in governments. I, I would imagine you're right. Yeah, uh, I, you know, so so it is an issue of scale. It's like, you know, as long as these these people who are i'm just projecting are nice uh you know lefty college students who who are uh you know on the right on the right side of history with with regard to uh to to to, to gender politics like so what if you know in 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 on restaurant dates you know she's into him paying i do think that they could i think that he could probably open up a, a playful conversation with her about it i think um, That's right. And and I think I think like one thing that my wife is good at doing that I'm terrible at doing is when she has a bad interaction with somebody, she will she will very quickly like the next day at the latest say, hey, can, can we talk about um, that thing that happened? I, I felt kind of weird about what had happened. I just want to hear from you uh -huh. what was going on with you, um, you know, just and, and but what she does that I think is skillful is that she she always starts from the posture that like she wants to know what she might have done mm -hmm. to provoke a kind of uh, weird or awkward response in the other person rather than pinning it on them and being like, well, you were acting weird. So I think, you know, maybe that's just like a, a, a way in of, of just saying, hey, I felt like there was kind of a strange dynamic there. I wonder yeah. what I might have, you know, what I might be able to do differently, what I might have done to, to make you feel weird in that situation. That is good advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, My wife likes me much better on this show than in real life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you credit her a lot. So. That's right. Right. Cause I'm not right. Um, yeah. Uh, so before we, we wrap up, we usually ask people if there's some advice that someone has given them or that even they found in a book, something that stayed with them that, that still carries weight. And I'm wondering if anything comes uh, to mind for you. 
I mean, so much. I'm trying to figure out one thing in particular. Yeah. Or rather, they're not like pithy, general kinds mm-hmm. of comments that I'm thinking. It's much more particular about me and my personality. Okay. I'm down to hear oh. it. <laughs> You're sitting with a therapist. <laughs> but it actually fits directly with what you just said your wife does mm-hmm. um, in part, which is her, if she's had a problem with somebody and a disagreement, um, her starting point is, well, maybe what did I do wrong? And not um, not jump. In other words, in, tr- in terms of trying to resolve it and trying to, either replay it or, mm. res, uh, you know, make thing, make amends. Um, the best advice for me personally I've gotten is that I don't take responsibility always for the full sort of what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that in, I mean, coming back to masculinity, maybe it does. We'll see if you can weave it in. Yeah. Um, that it's in a certain sense when you end up blaming yourself a great deal for things that happen wrong around you, mm-hmm. it's in a perverse way a form of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That you think you're more or all powerful and able to change things than you may be. Yeah. Um, so it requires a certain amount of stepping back, but it's also a, a, a relief. Uh, from some of the guilt mm-hmm. uh, that you can feel when things don't happen. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's that's some of the best advice I've gotten, but it's awfully personal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I bet there are applies more generally. That, that I mean, that's certainly applicable to me. I would imagine for Sam for too. Sure, yeah. yeah. So don't think it's as personal as you you might first guess. Um, can you tell people, uh, again, the title of your book, where they can find it? And, uh, if you happen to be on social media or any other platforms, what, where they can find you there? Great. Uh, the name of the book is are men animals question mark, how modern masculinity sells men short it was published by basic books, uh, two days ago. And, um, it is available on Amazon and all the other normal places people buy stuff. Um, if their bookstore is still in existence, I trust uh, you can find the book there as well. Mm-hmm. And, and if- I'm, on, I'm on Facebook, though not super active. I have a Twitter account, not super active either. So people uh, want to find you, they need to take a class with you. Is that? <laughs> uh, just they can they can just find me at the uh, Brown. Uh, my last name is Gutman G U T M A N N at Brown dot edu. Uh, and I answer all my emails. Oh, all right. Wonder. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks so much. Brilliant. Thanks, Thanks so much. Guys. Take care. That's a wrap, everybody. Uh, as always, you can email us with your advice questions at heymanpod at gmail.com. Better yet, shoot us a voicemail, 917-426-4326. If you want to get your Instagram or Twitter on, we're at heymanpod. And um, as always, we really appreciate if you would give us a review uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. It makes a big difference for us.